0: Reflections on colour symbolism Although the world today recognises that the spectrum of light available to the human eye provides us with a vast range of colours, it hasn't always been so. In the ancient world, indeed, even up until recent times, it was generally accepted that the spectrum consisted of seven colours only, and although artists and other specialists knew of a wider range, Convention still maintained the tradition of seven basic colours from which all other colours and colour symbolism derive. In the ancient world, this spectrum did not stand in splendid isolation. Colour was then, as it is now, not only a fundamental part of everyday existence, it was also fully integrated into the various cosmologies of the many religions and cults of the ancient world. As diverse as the many belief systems of the ancient world undoubtedly were, they generally thought of the structure of the cosmos as consisting of a spiritual heaven and a material earth, between which lay a succession of worlds, each represented by one of the seven planets, and ruled by a deity and on a hierarchy of spiritual beings. Each planet was also thought to correspond with the colour, with the primary sounds we call vowels, and with the seven notes of the musical scale, a veritable compendium of correspondences, many being as relevant to esoteric circles today as they were then. Of particular significance in this context were the teachings of Pythagoras, who flourished in the 6th century BC. He sought to establish a community on the principles of the harmony he perceived to be underlying the structure of the cosmos. To him, sound, colour and form were all expressions of one divine essence, recognisable in number, in geometry, in the division of the octave and in the spectrum of colour, analogues of the one all-embracing harmony that is divine providence. Pythagoras' efforts, although perhaps too idealistic for his time, were not in vain, as his teachings were influential in many of the philosophical and esoteric circles that succeeded him most notably in the Athenian Academy, established by Plato at the beginning of the 4th century BC, with the study of philosophy as its primary purpose. Plato's teachings were heavily influenced by Pythagoras, as inevitably were those of his student Aristotle, who built on the teachings of Pythagoras and Plato, and gave to the world a clear conception of an integrated world when he introduced his model of a geocentric cosmos. The geocentric model was further utilised by the Neoplatonists in the 3rd century AD. This school of thought quickly became the philosophical foundation for numerous mystical and spiritual associations, many of which prefer to meet and practise secretly. Consequently, as time passed, what initially may have started as an area of specialised knowledge became ever more esoteric, often requiring knowledge of sophisticated codes and keys to engage with and to understand it. Thus Pythagorean ideas have continued to be propagated in the world through the efforts of such bodies ever since, albeit in very covert ways. In the world of healing, Celsus, a celebrated Roman physician of the 1st century AD, discussed colour and its therapeutic application in his works on medicine as did his contemporary, Pliny the Elder, in his many-volumed work on natural history. It goes without saying that colour is intrinsic to our lives, but it is in the area of religion and spirituality that colour plays a particularly interesting role. It goes without saying that colour is intrinsic to our lives, but it is in the area of religion and spirituality that colour plays a particularly interesting role and in my opinion, nowhere better described than in Frederick Portal's book, Symbolic Colours, written in the first half of the 19th century by an author who stood between two worlds, an ancient world full of mysteries and imagination, and a modern world promising those who dare the prize of the knowledge of the gods and material wealth beyond dreams. Ancient religious tradition informs us that the Iranians assigned to each planet a beneficent or malignant influence according to their colour and their degree of light. In Genesis 9.13, God says to Noah, the rainbow shall be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. In mythology, Iris is the messenger of the gods and of good tidings, and the colours of the cincture of Iris, the rainbow, are the symbols of regeneration, which is the covenant of God and man. In Egypt, the robe of Isis was resplendent with all colours, of every hue displayed in nature. Osiris, the god all-powerful, gives the light, Isis modifies it, and transmits it to man by reflection. Isis is the light reflected upon the earth, and her symbolic robe was the hieroglyphic of the material and of the spiritual world. The fathers of the Church, those Platonists of Christianity, saw in the Old Testament the symbol of the New Covenant. Joseph was a symbol of the Messiah, and his robe, diapered with the most beautiful tints which his father gave him, was, according to St. Cyril, the emblem of his divine attributes. Among the Egyptians, writes synesius a Christian Neoplatonist of the 4th century AD, and a pupil of the ill-fated Hypatia of Alexandria, did not allow metal founders to represent the gods, for fear that they should deviate from the rules. Plato himself is reported to have said in his book, Laws 2, in the temples of Egypt it was never allowed, nor is it permitted at this day, neither to painters nor to any artists who make figures or other similar works to innovate in anything, nor to deviate in any way from that which has been regulated by the laws of the country and if the subject be investigated there would be found among them works of painting and sculpture which are neither more or less beautiful than those of the present day, which have been wrought by the same rules. In ancient Rome the penalty of death was incurred by selling or being clothed in a purple stuff. Archaeologists have remarked that Indian and Egyptian paintings and those of Greek origin, namely Etruscan, are composed of plain tints of a brilliant colour. Art did not speak only to the profane, it was still the interpreter and depository of sacred mysteries. However, the modern world is the child of the Enlightenment, the philosophical and social movement that emerged in 18th century Europe and still dominates so much of the world's thinking today. Enlightenment thought stresses that experience is the foundation of our understanding of truth and that religious doctrine has no place in the understanding of the physical world. Furthermore, the universe can only be understood through the use of reason, truth being arrived at by observation and the use of reason and systematic doubt. The Enlightenment gave rise to two significant developments, empiricism and mechanism. Empiricism maintains that human observation is a reliable indicator of the nature of phenomena, and that repeated observation can produce reasonable expectations about future events. Mechanism regards the universe as a machine that functions according to natural and predictable rules. Once the world is understood as a machine, then it may be manipulated for the benefit of humanity. Since the advent of the Enlightenment, Most of what we now know about colour is couched in Newtonian terms. Sir Isaac Newton was one of the great scientific influences at the dawn of the Enlightenment. He demonstrated that the spectrum of colour we commonly associate with the rainbow was derived from bending light through a prism. That light and colour were synonymous, thereby overturning the long-held Aristotelian view that colour was the property of objects. As children of the Enlightenment, Newton and his successors continued their rational speculations and experiments, not least with light and colour. Consequently, from the late 17th century, the study of light and its properties has become central to the domain of science in general and the field of physics in particular. Scientific research in this field is constantly producing new information and the language to describe it is constantly evolving and changing. Today light is thought of as an electromagnetic radiation visible to the human eye, and that which is visible to the eye is merely a tiny fraction of the known spectrum of electromagnetic radiation. The part of the spectrum visible to the human eye is perceived as a variety of colour, but they are in fact specific wavelengths of light ranging between 400 and 800 nanometers. It is generally accepted in scientific circles that the experience of colour is a biochemical effect taking place in the brain through the agency of specialised retinal cells, known as rods and cones. These cells chemically respond to certain wavelengths of light, particularly the complementary pairs of red-green and yellow-blue. Through them we experience, recognise, and come to know colour, and there have been many attempts to formulate structures and systems that connect human biology and psychology to the mechanisms of colour vision. Doubtless this will continue, because the belief that physical exposure to different colours has a direct and measurable effect on human biology, has over the last two centuries been an important driving force behind scientific research into colour and colour theory. Yet one can't help observing that as new and different branches of scientific endeavour emerge, the possibility of a simple contextual understanding of colour seems increasingly unlikely. On the other hand, when we step out of the ring-fenced domain of the material sciences, we enter another realm altogether. It is a realm with which Portal is patently familiar and in which he is very comfortable and it constitutes the main theatre of his work. To understand it, and him, we must accept as he undoubtedly did, that we humans are more than physical creatures of earth, limited to sensory perception alone. Indeed we are creatures of light, born of a light that emanates from a spiritual sun, where colour is not simply a byproduct of chemistry, but is the very soul of light, and as such is an analogue of the spiritual atom that rests at the heart of the mystery of human existence. We should also note, that in ancient times it was taught in the precincts of the sanctuary, that as a soul descends to earth from the heights of heaven, it is clothed in a series of garments, first in an ethereal garment of non-material purity, then successively as we progress through the planetary spheres acquiring a solar garment, a lunar garment and finally a physical body. Today this is of course more properly the domain of theology wherein light is understood to be not simply the source, substance and nature of colour, as perceived by the senses, but the divine light of God, a light that sustains all things yet is truly unknowable. This light has long been a subject of speculation among students of spiritual mysteries. Indeed, within the precincts of the sanctuary, it has generally been accepted that the infinite and uncreated light of God cannot be known directly but only by analogy, through the veil of thought-forms that fill our world. For although we may be creatures of light, our realm of experience is still, for the moment, the realm of created form, and not of the undivided essence. Thus what we perceive through the filters of the mind, and of the senses, is only an analogue of the energies or activities of that uncreated light, because our means of perception are designed for a world of duality, not a world of unity. Consequently, for those who seek knowledge of the spiritual dimension of creation, the language of symbolism is a necessary tool for an evolving understanding. It is a tool that opens the doors to the inner realm of the soul, wherein metaphor and allegory play such important roles. It is perhaps in the recognition of the divine nature of light, of its closeness with our perceptions of the true nature of consciousness, that we as creatures, have from the most ancient times sought to harness the virtues, powers and qualities of colour within our lives, particularly in maintaining or restoring health. Indeed, according to the mythology of ancient Egypt, the art of healing with colour was established by the god Tahuth. Teachings attributed to him, which include the use of colour and healing, passed via the hermetic tradition into the Greco-Roman world. Thus both ancient Egyptians and the Greeks used coloured minerals, stones, crystals, salves and dyes as remedies, and painted treatment sanctuaries in various shades of colour to enhance the healing process. In ancient Greece, the understanding of the significance of colour grew, so it would seem, in tandem with the developing interest in the nature and function of the elements, those being fire, air, water and earth, particularly after Aristotle, the student of Plato, revealed to the world an interpretation of the nature of the cosmos that, arguably, had been until that time given only to initiates of the Mystery Schools. What he revealed was an understanding of the cosmos consisting of heaven and earth and of the elements that formed them. The centre of the cosmos, he declared, was immovable, and fixed and occupied by the life-bearing earth, the home of all mortal creatures. Whereas the higher part was called heaven, the abode of the gods, which he described as being occupied by the divine bodies we call stars. The whole cosmos was understood to be spherical and continually turned upon a central axis, at the extremes of which were to be found the Arctic and Antarctic poles, and at the center could be found the earth. The substance of the heavens he called ether, a pure element that was divine indestructible and unchanging. He described it as being in continuous motion, forever revolving in a circle, moved by the power of God, which he called the Prime Mover. Of the stars contained within the heavens, some moved only with the turning of the heavens themselves, forever occupying the same position in the firmament. These he called the fixed stars. A pathway or road was formed in their midst by the circle of the zodiac, It was divided into twelve stations or regions. This road was followed daily by the sun and his attendant planets. In the centre of the cosmos lay the sublunary world, consisting of four elements that are continually subject to change, external influence and disturbance, and consequently corruptible and perishable. Aristotle described the outer ring of the sublunary world, as consisting of a fiery substance kindled by the ether above it. Below this fiery element is the element of air, a substance that is naturally murky and cold as ice, but when illuminated and set on fire by motion, it grows bright and warm. This element undergoes every kind of change imaginable, interacting with the fiery element above and the watery element below, or beneath the element of air is the element of water, Finally, located beneath the element of water is the element of the Earth, firmly fixed at the centre of the Universe. The five elements are thus arranged in concentric spheres, forming five regions, the less being in each case surrounded by the greater, namely Earth surrounded by water, water by air, air by fire, and fire by ether, the total constituting the entire cosmos. The outer portion That of ether represented the heavens, the dwelling of the immortal gods, whilst the lower is the elemental realm, the abode of mortal creatures. These fundamental constituents of the world also correspond with the four humours of human biology, as did colour. To fire was attributed colour and yellow bile, to air sanguine and red blood, to water phlegm and the colour white, and to earth, melancholy and a black bile. These humours were thought to reside in four organs in particular, the spleen, the heart, the liver and the brain, and to determine emotional and physical disposition. Good health involved the proper balance of these humours, and disease would result if their mixture was in an unbalanced state. Colour was then considered intrinsic to restoring the balance. Coloured garments, oils... Plasters, ointments and salves were often used to treat disease. For example, Celsus followed the doctrines established by Pythagoras and Hippocrates and included the use of coloured ointments, plasters and flowers in several treaties on medicine. While Avicenna, the great Persian physician who lived at the turn of the second millennium and whose books were of great influence upon European thought, at least until the beginning of the Enlightenment in the 18th century, considered colour to be of vital importance in both diagnosis and treatment. He used colour in the treatment of sickness, insisting that red moved the blood, while blue or white cooled it and yellow reduced pain and inflammation. He prescribed potions of red flowers to cure blood disorders and yellow flowers or sunlight to cure other disorders. His methods were followed by many physicians, thus in the 16th century Paracelsus regarded light and colour as essential for good health and used them extensively in treatment, together with elixirs, charms, talismans, herbs and minerals. The use of colour in healing is not uncommon today, indeed there are many examples of modern experimentation and exploration in the therapeutic use of colour. Modern technology allows us to look at the influence of light and colour on the biochemistry of the body in ways that would have been impossible a century ago. In recent times it has been discovered that in most if not all mammals there is a nerve pathway unconnected with vision that links the eye directly to the hypothalamus, the control gland of the endocrinal glandular system. Its role is not yet fully understood. A similar nerve pathway links the eye with the pineal gland, a neuroendocrine transducer, which translates nerve signals into hormonal messages. It is thought to influence the way a variety of chemicals, including melatonin, are released. Colour and light have also been applied in the field of psychology. For example, in 1947, Dr. Max Lüscher, Professor of Psychology at Basel University, developed a colour-based personality test that is widely used today. According to Lucia's theory, the colours red, green, blue and yellow represent the four pillars of human psychology. Blue corresponds with relationships and with other people. Green corresponds with self-image. Red corresponds with the sense of exhilaration and passion. And yellow corresponds with the ability to adapt. Science may explain the mechanics of colour, and to some extent perhaps its functional role in our lives, which is no bad thing. But there are dimensions science cannot enter, dimensions in which our relationship with light and colour transcend the rational process of the mundane world. It is to this area that Frederick Portal draws our attention. He introduces us to a world of symbols and symbolism, wherein colour is a fundamental part of its language. He reminds us, that it is an ancient language, as old as civilization itself, in which colour is neither a biochemical reaction to radiation nor a feature of a given figure, but a manifestation of the energies of the essential qualities of a person, place or object, and as such adds another dimension of understanding to what is conveyed by their form. In simple terms, colour leads us beyond the obvious significations of form, into a world of varied and subtle meanings and minds such as Celsus, Avicenna and Frederick Portal set a context whereby we may begin to explore that world. Thank you.